You are listening to Move With Radiance with Stephanie Dankelson, a podcast all about redefining your relationship to exercise, food, and your body by learning how to first redefine the relationship with yourself. Are you ready to discover your inner truth, your inner radiance? Because we all deserve to feel at home in our bodies. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Move With Radiance. I'm your host, Stephanie, and I have some really exciting news. <laughs> I'm not sure how exciting it is to you guys, but it's pretty exciting for my side. But I quit my nine to five job. Craziness. <laughs> and what's really funny, actually, I was thinking about this the other day, is right around this time last, well, two years ago, 2017, I was laid off from a nine to five. And it's so crazy that I like chose to put myself in that position because looking back at my life, like that was a really, really, really rough period for me and brought up so much of these feelings around uncertainty and control and the lack thereof, (laughs) at least from my perspective at that point. And so to like actively go out and leave something that, you know, many of us, or at least I've seen for a long time is like a really safe space. Like I, I threw that in the garbage (laughs) essentially. And it's interesting because I was thinking like, okay, well what changed? You know, I'm not putting my, like, I, I don't have the income yet to fully supplement what I was making prior. And the fears of, you know, got to pay my bills, got to, you know, buy groceries, got to pay rent and all this kind of stuff came up. But there's this odd sense of calm amongst the chaos of these fear-based thoughts. And I really sat down. I was like, what's the difference between now and then? And when I really look at the two, what changed was my relationship and my story to uncertainty. And what it means to have certainty slash like be in control. And for a really long time in my life, like control and certainty were two things that I latched onto like no other. (laughs) And when I felt uncertain or out of control, there were just all of these different things that I would try and manipulate in my external world in order to feel safe or certain. And what I realized is within the past, really, really the past year, especially is when my relationship and my story to uncertainty changed. And what happened was I stopped relying on my external world to provide me those things and started working on how I could feel safe and certain within myself to trust myself and to know that like, no matter what happens, I will handle it. I can handle it. My body can handle it. I will be okay. And so when there's this certainty within myself, when there's this new trust within myself, I no longer feel the need to manipulate my external environment in order to feel safe, in order to feel certain, in order to feel like trust and safety and all that kind of stuff because I've developed those things within myself. You know, and I play out the worst case scenario. Okay, what is the worst case scenario? I won't be able to sustain myself fully in my business. And so I go and get another job. (laughs) Like in my head, 
not like there was like the fears around not being able to pay my bills. It was like life or death. And once we break it down and really play out the worst case scenario, we see that like either it's a not going to happen or B that like, it's really not that bad. And we'll be able to figure out a solution to that. So I just wanted to share that. And I, I talked a little bit about those types of things on my Instagram, um, a few weeks ago. So I don't even can scroll back, but <laughs> that's essentially summing it up is that I, the, the difference is I've created a new story and a new relationship to uncertainty and that I can be certain within myself to trust that I'll be able to figure it out. So hopefully that is helpful in, in any kind of situation that you're going through. Um, and just know that like your fears and all of this stuff is not you and you get to choose what serves you and what doesn't. So honor the fear, let it happen. You know, it's coming in, like, don't push it away, but acknowledge it and then say, thank you, but I'm going to choose a different path and just start practicing and playing with that concept and just kind of micro actions that you can take to rebuild that trust within yourself. So that's that. Um, I'm really excited. I am still taking one-to-one clients. My schedule is now going to be fully opening up. I'm creating space for everything I'm trying to create in my life. And I'm so excited for all the content and the courses and all of these things that I'm trying to create for you. And I'm, I'm just so excited. Today I have Laura Bryden on and I'm so, I've said excited like five times. Can you tell I'm so excited today, (laughs) but I'm really excited because I've been wanting to have her on for a long time. Um, we've been talking about like, um, you know, periods and lack of periods and all this kind of stuff kind of throughout different episodes. And so I wanted to bring someone on who is an expert, so to speak in this area and just talk all things, period (laughs) birth control. Um, we talk about endometriosis. We talk about, you know, what it looks like to ovulate. And I mean, just so many different things when it comes to the topic of, you know, what a healthy period looks like, what a healthy cycle looks like and how you can, um, just start looking for signs in, you know, what might be good and what might not be so great and how to, you know, sort through that. So I, yeah, I'm excited to bring you this conversation. And with that, let me tell you a little bit more about Laura. Dr. Laura Bryden is a naturopathic doctor and the period revolutionary, leading the change to better periods. Informed by a strong science background and more than 20 years with patients, Laura is a passionate communicator about women's health and alternatives to hormonal birth control. Her book, Period Repair Manual, is a manifesto of natural treatment for better hormones and better periods and provides practical solutions using nutrition, supplements, and natural hormones. Now in its second edition, the book has been an underground sensation and has worked to quietly change the lives of tens of thousands of women. I hope you enjoy this episode. Tag me on Instagram. I love seeing your stories, your posts, knowing that you're listening, that you're getting some value from these episodes. Feedback is so, so, so helpful for me just to help me understand what kind of content you're looking for me to create. I will keep creating that content until 
you tell me to stop. So keep letting me know that it's helpful. Tag me at Stephanie Dangleson. And if you're not following at Move With Radiance, go on over, give uh, that page a follow. I'll be doing a little bit more deep dive into the podcast, do some giveaways and all that kind of stuff over there. So tag us both. Let us know you're listening. And I so hope you enjoy this episode. Here is Laura. Laura, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Yeah, me too. Um, I, I love your work. I've been following you for a while and it's, I think that it just needs to be exposed to more women and yeah, I'm just excited. So I love to start off first by having you tell us a little bit about you and your work. And if you want to talk about how you got started, whatever you want to help people understand who you are and what you do. Sure. So I've been a naturopathic doctor for 20 years, working full-time, nine to five, helping women have better periods. A lot of my patients over the years were women struggling with you know, things like PCOS and thyroid and perimenopause and all things that actually respond extremely well to diet and nutrition and supplements. And then from there, a few years ago, I compiled all of my experiences, all of what I discovered, what works into my book, Period to Perimenial. So now that's out in the world and I hope helping women and now I get a chance to interact with readers writing me about their experiences and it's been really good. Yeah, I love it. (laughs) So I have a slew of questions I want to take you today. Um, Mm -hmm. And I guess let's first start off with why is ovulation important? Because I just don't think we're taught that. And let's just start there. (laughs) It's, It's the main event of the menstrual cycle in that it's what defines a menstrual cycle. Without ovulation, it's not technically a cycle, although there can still be a bleed which could be a a pill bleed, which is not really a period, or it could be a bleed that comes as part of what's called an anovulatory cycle or a cycle in which ovulation did not occur. And that is not ideal because that means that we didn't make the hormones that we needed, including progesterone, which can only be made after ovulation. So when we say that ovulation is important, it's really because progesterone is important. Progesterone is a Um, a hormone that helps us build bones and regulate the immune system. And I'll say right off the bat that the progesterone that we make is different from the contraceptive drugs or progestin drugs that we're given as part of hormonal birth control. They're often called progesterone, but they're not. So that's the first reason that ovulation is important. It's how we make progesterone, number one. Number two, it tells us a story about our health. So we have to be, in order to ovulate, we have to be healthy enough in every way, which includes being fully nourished, fully fed, not having an underlying issue like insulin or thyroid, which are two common things that could interfere with ovulation. So having a regular cycle is a really good barometer of health. It's why in my book, I refer to our periods as our monthly report card. It gives a little check-in into our health. And just to, you know, put it in perspective, I... I've been saying this more. I, lit- I actually do feel sorry for men that they don't have ovulation, that they don't have that little window to check in with their health. It was the original, if you will, like kind of biohacking to be able to track cycles and see that we're ovulating. And if men had that, they'd be all over it. And also the other thing is if men had to ovulate in order to make hormones that they need for general health, then yeah, I'm sure we'd hear all about it. They'd never stop talking about it because it's 
in a way, arguably for us, you know, it's what give a, gives us our hormonal superpowers. For sure. I totally agree with that. Yeah. So to break it down even further, what hormones are involved and like what, like which ones should we be paying attention to, to understand what a healthy cycle looks like? Yeah. All right. Well, on the, I guess in terms of paying attention to, like if we were going to do testing to try to work out what's happening with the cycle, one of the most important tests that I do is a blood test on day two or three of the cycle for a horm- one hormone called FSH and one called LH or luteinizing hormone, which is actually quite an important hormone to know about. It's Those two hormones are made by the pituitary. They're talking to the ovaries. And the way they're talking to the ovaries on day two can tell us a lot. So LH... Typically, you know, in, just in very simple terms, LH will be high in PCOS and low in hypothalamic amenorrhea or low in under eating. So I'm using that more and more with my patients, kind of just looking at that as a starting place to see what is the communication between the pituitary and the ovaries. And then after that, the hormones, what happens is on the journey to ovulation, we make estrogen. It's the only way we can really make it. So if, you know, people always readers say to me, oh, I'm you know, panicked because I have low estrogen. What can I do to boost my estrogen? It's not about that. It's, if you have low estrogen, it's because you're not making the journey to ovulation. So again, that's where ovulation comes in. It's like, what can I... So then the question is, why am I not ovulating? And what can I do to change that? That gives a better framework for thinking about estrogen. And then... So estrogen goes up. And then with when we finally reach ovulation, that's when we make progesterone only for two weeks between ovulation and the period, ovulation and the period. Before ovulation, no matter how long the cycle is, there is no, it's normal for there to be no progesterone, which is another thing that one of my messages is that if someone has said to you, okay, you have low, low progesterone, you, you have your progesterone deficiency. The very first question to ask is, okay, well, when was that tested? Because was I realistically in my what's called luteal phase, which is the two weeks between ovulation and the period? Because if not, then it would be normal for it to be low, if that makes sense. I, I have a blog post called The Right Way to Test Progesterone. And I hope you know that can start to that can okay. really help people to work it out. Because I've had so many, you know, comments from readers that just panicked that they have progesterone deficiency. But then it turns out the test was done before ovulation. So then it doesn't mean anything. It's normal to be progesterone deficient at that time. Right. Okay. So I have a few questions off of that. Yes. Because <laughs> um, I do want to go into, you know, in terms of like symptoms without doing a blood test, like what are some signs of sure. irregular periods yes. and and um, versus a normal period. and then. Another piece I wanted to dive into is what kinds of things can, I guess, cause the irregular period. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so exactly. wherever you want to take that. <laughs> okay. So the first thing is we have a handy thing called basal body temperature, which I don't know if your listeners know about that. It's a way of tracking ovulation, essentially tracking progesterone with temperature. So the way it works is you get an ovulation thermometer. You take your temperature first thing in the morning before you get out of bed. That's the key is that before you've moved any muscles, so you're just lying there, that's your resting temperature. And it's handy because our temperature, resting temperature goes up by half a degree after ovulation when we make progesterone. 
And that's a scientific measure. Like if you, if, you know, if you see that, that rise and that continued rise for the two weeks before the period, that is clear evidence that ovulation occurred and that progesterone was made. And if you don't see the temperature rise, then that's pretty clear evidence that ovulation is not occurring, even if you then get a period. So that's a very do-it-yourself way to start to ask this question. Is ovulation happening or not? And then the answer to your second question of why, if you discover that ovulation is not happening, well, that's when the detective hat goes on, you know, that there's different possibilities. And that's where it is helpful to have a doctor help, you know, be part of that process because some blood testing at that stage is, is helpful. It doesn't have to be complicated blood testing. You know, the doctor would normally rule out a few things, you know, obviously just make sure, well, number one, make sure it's not early menopause, which is um, not common, but I always, it's always on the back of some women's minds. I think they're just, you know, concerned about that. So that's like, that can easily be ruled out with a blood test. And then obviously rule out pregnancy. Um, uh, well, sorry, if ovulation is not occurring, I mean, if, if you're not getting a period, then pregnancy needs to be ruled out. If um, ovulation will have occurred, obviously, before pregnancy to happen. Mm-hmm. But then the other thing is um, rule out a thyroid problem. It's a common reason for not ovulating. And then look at a condition called PCOS, which I'm guessing your listeners know about that, polycystic ovary syndrome. Yeah, I think. Yeah, it's a common reason to see bleeds, but not ovulation. So what are called anovulatory cycles are fairly typical of that hormonal condition. So say you are not on any kind of birth control and this can still be the case where you bleed, but you may not be ovulating. Yes. Okay. Um, I just want to make sure. Yeah, because you know. There's two differences there. Um, And okay, so let's go into what like an irregular, yes, like symptoms of an irregular period or like just that kind of, let's go down that avenue a little bit. Yeah, well, should we start with, okay, let's start with, okay, the first type of irregular period is no period at all. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of the starting place. It's just nothing happening at all. And that a common scenario might be after coming off birth control, because just to be clear, the bleeds on the pill are not periods. They're not cycles. They were forced bleeds, drug withdrawal bleeds. And so women might experience it as, okay, my periods stopped when I came off the pill. But no, they actually, the last time you had a period was before you went on the pill. So that might've been you know, 10 or 15 years before. So I'll say to my patients, okay, the last time you had a cycle, an actual cycle was when you were 16. And I'll want to know in that situation, were they regular back then? You know, were they, what information can we glean from what were your cycles doing? Because one little interesting piece of information, even having had the chance to have a couple of years of proper cycling as a teenager before going on the pill, in my experience, bodes well for getting periods, getting back to cycling when coming off the pill. The, who the, the women I see who really struggle are maybe women who never really had a cycle, like might have gone on the pill basically from day one, like from 14 or 15, and not really ever had a chance to, to, to mature 
the communication between the brain and the ovaries that takes actually 12 years to mature, Mm. which is interesting. So if we shut that down with the drugs, contraceptive drugs, if we shut down that communication between the brain and the ovaries, we shut down, we shut down the maturation of that communication, then it makes sense that it's going to be harder to get that going when you finally come off the pill and say to the body, okay, now you now do it. Okay. Now for the first time in a decade or maybe 15 years, you finally are allowed to stimulate, you know, the pituitary is finally allowed to stimulate the ovaries and make something happen. And it, it needs, it makes it, that's not an easy thing to do. If the pituitary has been suppressed for a decade and a half, I'm just, I'm framing it in those terms just to give, send home the message that if you don't, start cycling immediately I'm coming off the pill it's that's pretty normal like that's pretty that's to be expected it's not something that is wrong with you it's something that was wrong with the fact that they put you on this ovulation suppressing drug for so long and the normal reaction the body would be not quite sure how to get going so what's called amenorrhea or no no cycles at all after coming off the pill is pretty common or it can happen for other reasons the other reason common reason to have no, no bleeds at all, nothing like zero happening is under eating or specifically under eating carbohydrates is what I see with some of my patients. I have a blog post called Have You Lost Your Period to a Low Carb Diet? So that dives into some of the reasons, mechanisms for why that can happen. And that can happen, sorry, that can happen yeah. at any weight. Like I think some people, when they think yeah. I'm under eating, you have to look a certain way. No. It can happen at any size, really. Yeah. yeah, we used to think it was just all related to body fat, but now we know it relates to energy intake, food intake, because the, the brain, basically the hypothalamus, which is the hormone command center in the brain, is waiting for signals about food coming in. It's actually waiting for a certain amount of insulin to go up, it's, it's, it's gauging that. And then it decides, okay, everything's good. I'm going to now stimulate an ovulation and therefore a period. And it would do that also based on how much um, energy is going out in the form of exercise. So there's actually some online calculators you can do, like you need, depending on your lean body mass and the number of, number of hours of depending on which type of exercise, the number of calories you're burning, you can calculate how much food energy you need, like a really active person who's trying to recover from hypothalamic amenorrhea, it's going to be up around the 3000 calorie intake, just two per day, just to come close to being able to convince the body to do that. It's actually a lot higher than you'd think. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to clarify that. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So that's okay. So that's, that's no periods. And that's where, obviously, I mentioned earlier about ruling out pregnancy. That is important to rule out because sure. you can fall, you can become pregnant without ever seeing a period. That's an important piece of information mm-hmm. to know because first ovulation comes first and only then a period. And if you happen to become pregnant on the first time you ovulate, you won't see a period. I just had that happen to a patient of mine, even though I told her. I mean, I've had this happen a few times, but like I would often say, okay, you need to do a pregnancy test if you're not you know, having periods. And then she's like, nothing's working. Nothing's working. I'm eating more. I'm eating enough. I'm sure I'm eating enough. Nothing's working. Oh, I'm three months pregnant. So <laughs> you need, yeah. So that does happen um, quite commonly, actually. So it's really worth considering that. And then, okay. So then completely lack of periods, 
would also require the doctor to measure glucoprolactin, to measure thyroid, to assess is it a medication that you're taking that's interfering with periods. Look at all that. And then the other kind of lack of periods is irregular periods or periods that don't come very often. Those are probably going to be an ovulatory cycles or bleeds where no ovulation happened. That could also be from under eating, but that can also be from polycystic ovary syndrome, which is in its classic form is quite a different situation. It's more linked to insulin resistance, um, which does involve often some kind of, maybe some sort of moderate dietary restriction and exercise can be helpful and nutritional supplements, a supplement called inositol that can, is extremely helpful for PCOS. It's, um, it's still, PCOS is still ultimately about the signaling between the hypothalamus and the ovaries, but so it's a little bit different. It's actually um, yeah, almost like an over, you know, overfed situation in some cases. This is the point where we're going to talk about the confusion between hypothalamic amenorrhea and PCOS. Because in some ways they're they're opposite, really. One is you know, in simplest terms, hypothalamic amenorrhea is undereating. In simplest, you know, really oversimplified terms, PCOS is associated with potentially not overeating, but, you know, sort of um, an intolerance to carbohydrates or a situation where a lower carb diet might be beneficial. Keeping in mind that I will say, to be fair, PCOS is genetic and there's lots of other factors. So I don't, I definitely don't want to give the impression that it develops because of someone's eating wrong or something like that. It's, there's different factors to it. But with the two conditions, hypothalamic amenorrhea and PCOS, there is some overlap as well, which is needs to be addressed and stated. So first of all, it's very, I'll say very, it, it's actually quite common to be told you have PCOS when really you have hypothalamic amenorrhea. Hmm. So I see that quite a lot of, I've blogged about that a few times. It's, it happens because the doctors are mistakenly, mistakenly using an ultrasound to diagnose PCOS, but it can't be, it can't be done that way. A polycystic ovaries and ultrasound, I would say, essentially means almost nothing. And also they're using a few other markers to potentially diagnose PCOS, one being a hormone called AMH to mistakenly diagnose PCOS when actually AMH can be high in hypothalamic amenorrhea. Women with, women with hypothalamic amenorrhea or lack of periods due to undereating essentially can have polycystic ovaries. They can have high AMH. They can have acne. You know, they can have symptoms, that signs that kind of put them under the PCOS diagnostic umbrella. But yet the main treatment they need is to eat more in particular, potentially more carbohydrate. So that... I really just want to get that message out there just to be alert to that possibility of misdiagnosis or overdiagnosis. So if someone's been told they have PCOS, I would say, go back to the drawing board, ask, how was it diagnosed? Do I really have this? Or is, have I just been given this label and I don't need it, don't deserve it. I'm not being served by this label. So that's the first inter, you know, overlap. The other thing is it's possible to have both conditions, which is actually very frustrating. It's possible to have both. It's possible to kind of have PCOS and then slide back into hypothalamic amenorrhea from under eating. Mm -hmm. So there is a bit of overlap. And I would just 
yeah, caution women to, you know, work through that. One of the best tests to really see what's going on to test is one is what is the LH? I spoke about that earlier, that day two or three LH. Is it high or low? It's high, it's likely to be PCOS. If it's low, it's likely to be hypothalamic amenorrhea. And the other test to look at is insulin. Do you, if you've, you know, if you've been told PCOS, the very next question is, okay, well, is it really PCOS? But also, do I have insulin resistance? Because that everything hinges on that. Insulin cannot be diagnosed by a test for glucose, blood glucose. It needs a test for insulin, the hormone insulin, which can be done either as fasting or as a two-hour kind of challenge test, but measuring insulin, not just glucose. If that yeah, yeah. makes sense, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about um, testosterone? Does that have anything to do with? Yes, okay. yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. So measuring the male, so that's so excess testosterone or male hormone is associated with PCOS. Mm. So that needs to be tested ideally. Now, the, the thing about the PCOS diagnosis currently, I would argue it's a very sloppy di- diagnostic criteria. Like it's pretty easy to qualify for that diagnosis. Even if you have normal testosterone and blood test, you know, even if <laughs> this is why, you know, I'm a bit concerned about how that diagnosis is being given. But yes, if the, if the male hormones are high, that is definitely looking like a PCOS picture, although it may not be associated with insulin resistance. So, but, you know, it still may not be that, that the low carb, approach is the best approach. Are are your listeners familiar with that? Like if there is insulin resistance and the classic PCOS picture, then a lower carb approach can help, right? That's the the kind of concurrent consensus. And that's true, but it doesn't mean that just having high male hormones means a lower carb approach is going to help. And also the way, when I say it's a sloppy diagnosis, the problem is even if the male hormones are normal on blood tests, you can still qualify for the diagnosis by just having signs of male hormones, which includes, it potentially includes acne, although I would argue that maybe shouldn't be one of the criteria. The, the true sign of male hormone excess is some kind of facial hair, not just a little fuzz and not just a little bit on the upper lip, but like actually coarse hairs growing in the chin or the chest or around the nipples or lower belly. That is a, recognized sign of excess male hormone, even if the blood tests are normal. Hmm. Yeah. Part part of the problem with the blood tests is they're not terribly accurate. And also um, male hormones change with age. So we really do need some reference ranges that are um, on an age gradient. So younger women have higher testosterone, older, you know, so the older women have lower lower testosterone. So we need to have, keep that in mind when assessing yeah. So if you've got someone at 35 and they're just, you know, just within the normal testosterone range, that arguably could be seen as high for her age. If that makes sense. Yes, for sure. Okay. Yeah. I feel um, that's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I agree. I feel like it's, I just see so many different, I just feel like this needs to be talked about more. So I appreciate yeah. this. <laughs> yeah. It's a big thing, especially, and you know, anyone working in yeah, I mean, any, I mean, anyone working with women basically needs to know about hypothalamic amenorrhea and PCOS and how to differentiate between the two. For sure. Because they're both extremely common. PCOS is probably a little bit more common, but they can look very similar. They can switch back and forth. You know, you see what I mean? Like it's, it's, this is a kind of literacy that any 
anybody, male or female, any, this is my, my new message, anyone who gives health advice to women of any kind, gives any kind of dietary advice to women needs to know about these two conditions. Yeah, because, I mean, you could be telling someone to diet yeah. when they should, in fact, be eating more. And I know we just place so much emphasis on health looking a certain way. It's like, these are the things we really need to be paying attention to as women. <laughs> I know. I just have to tell you about a conversation I've had a couple of times. So, you know, I've been on a little bit active on social media and in some of my presentations with the message that women, some women are losing their periods to a low-carb diet or losing their ovulations to a low-carb diet. And then I get pushback from male so-called experts, you know, saying, saying, well, that, you know, I, I've never seen that. You know, I don't know. No one's telling me about that. And then so then my response is, okay, well, have you asked them? Like, do you know if your patient, if your client is ovulating regularly? Like, for example, do you know if she's on the pill? Because then that's masking the whole situation and she's not able to ovulate anyway. So you may not realize that the diet you've recommended is seriously underfeeding her and that she wouldn't be able to ovulate when she eventually comes off the pill, for example. You know, or even if she is having cycles, do you know if she's actually ovulating? Like, and they, of course, I mean, the answer is they're not asking. They have no idea. Like no. they've never thought about the pill or ovulation or anything to do with human physiology. Like I would argue this is not just a niche women's issue. This is how the human body works with regular ovulation and cycles. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is good. This is so good. Yeah. <laughs> like again, like if men ovulated, had to ovulate to make testosterone, we would, we would never hear the end of it. Oh, never. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I, these kinds of kinds of conversations I feel like are just now starting to arise mm-hmm. and it's like, but wait, how long have we, no, know. it's just crazy. Well, part of it's come from I will say for what it's worth, I think part of the reason that we undervalue women's hormones, or we completely don't value them actually, is to do with 60 years of hormonal birth control because that drug works by shutting down ovulation, so completely switching off female hormones. So of course, that's created a paradigm of thinking that we don't need those hormones. And doctors routinely say to their patients things like, you know, whatever's happening with you, whether it's period pain or whatever it is, you know, some post-pill PCOS or the, the answer is, we'll just go back on the pill, take this drug to keep your ovaries asleep until you're ready to make a baby. <laughs> it's crazy to me. It's like, yeah. That makes me so angry. <laughs> I know. Like I'd be saying, like, to, saying to men, take this drug to keep your testicles asleep until you're ready for a baby because yeah, I mean, you don't need that testosterone until you're ready to make a baby. Like, yeah, and meanwhile, I mean, they, of course men need testosterone for mood, for muscle mass, but we need estrogen and progesterone, real estrogen and progesterone also for mood and for muscle mass and for bone density and for heart health and for preventing dementia. The endocrinologist, Professor Gerilyn Pryor, who helped me with period repair manual, makes this bold statement, which I love, which she says, 35 to 40 years of ovulatory cycles, meaning regular ovulation, is important not just for fertility, but to prevent heart disease, dementia, osteoporosis, and breast cancer. Mm. And she says that because of all the benefits of progesterone for potentially preventing breast cancer. And 
both of both estrogen and progesterone for the health of the brain. So yeah, that's it's kind of a big deal. And this is true for so this applies to women who never are gonna have never want a baby. It's nothing, it's really, I mean, making a baby is only just one thing that our hormonal system can do. It's doing all these other things for our health generally. Yeah, and I think that that's the misconception or that's that's what's being talked about is well, oh, you don't want a baby, so you can just yeah. take the pill and and you'll be fine. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, there's so much more. <laughs> yeah. Hormones are well ultimately, I mean, if we if we value, if we can come to the way of thinking that we value estrogen and progesterone, then we've then the logical extension of that is that we value ovulation. Yeah. Because ovulation is the only way to make those hormones. So can we talk about some of the benefits of, of both of those hormones? I know we did a little bit, but are yeah. there like more on a a uh, specific level, like what those things do for us? Yeah. So es- our main estrogen is called estradiol, made by the ovaries. It's different from the drug ethanol estradiol, which is in the most types of birth control. Estradiol is highly beneficial. It, um, it's anabolic, so it builds muscle mass, which is actually why women are actually incredibly kind of strong during our what's called follicular phase or our high estrogen high estrogen phase leading up, leading up to ovulation, then um, it's very good for the mitochondria. It stimulates the mitochondria, which some of your listeners might know. The mitochondria are the little powerhouse powerhouses in each of our cells. Very important for long term health. Had you heard that? Had your do you think your listeners would know the word mitochondria? Maybe explain it a little bit. Yeah, so yeah. It's these little what they call organelles that live inside each and every cell. Like there's hundreds of them in each cell Mm -hmm. and they do everything for us. Like they make energy. They um, actually, they make hormones as well. You know, they're anti-aging. That's where, it's where we burn. It's where we burn, turn food energy into body energy. So it's it's an important part of the body. A lot of nutritional, a lot of people in the nutrition space now speak about the health of the mitochondria mm. and what we can do to enhance that. And estradiol is a great way. Make, actually, making some estrogen is a great way to do that. Estrogen is also, estradiol is also very good for the brain health, for, um, as I mentioned, bones, for heart health long-term. You could argue, you know, each and every dose, monthly dose of estradiol is like a deposit into the bank account of long-term health. That's why we have something called an estrogen score, which is your lifetime exposure to estrogen is beneficial for preventing dementia, heart disease. And then progesterone is a bit different. It's not anabolic. It um, tends to be a little bit catabolic. So it, it progesterone, it, women don't like it as much from a fitness perspective is because it will... Um, increases body temperature, increases appetite, um, potentially makes us more prone to injury during that luteal phase. This is why I've just done a whole um, lecture series with a colleague about um, sports kind of training and fueling for different phases of the menstrual cycle, depending on which hormone is dominant. So progesterone has that side of things, but on the plus side, progesterone is very calming hormone. So it's good for mood. It's excellent for the brain. It um, breaks down into a what's called a neurosteroid, steroid, neurosteroid, which means it's a um, like a sort of like a neurotransmitter or brain active substance that's hormonal, and so it does that. It also modulates the immune system, so it kind of helps to prevent autoimmune disease. That's one of its 
superpowers, I guess I would say, about progesterone. It also is very good for bone health. Mm. So again, each and every monthly dose of progesterone is preventing osteoporosis. It's a long-term project. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I'm not sure when this episode will be re- released in terms of the other interviews I've done, yeah. but one woman that I had on, she um, hadn't gotten her period for, I think it was, she was on birth control for seven years. And then prior to that, she maybe had one or two irregular ones. And yeah. Um, when she was getting tested, she found out she had pre-osteoporosis at age 23. Um, and it's just, yeah. 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 Well, we know we know from science that the pill prevents what's called peak bone density. So by our mid twenties, we're supposed to, I think it's like mid to late twenties, we're supposed to have the highest bone density we'll ever have in our life basically that's our that's our deposit into the bank account of bones and then it starts to from that point it just goes down but you know if you if you if it's big enough you know if you have a good density and you stay healthy and active that that'll definitely take you through to the end of your life but the concerning thing is the pill prevents that and it actually in a way like you know we're sold this narrative that okay the pill is safe it's been extensively studied it's been studied it's been it's safe but the truth is it hasn't been around long enough to know what's happening to women's bone density long-term who've been on the pill, especially if they went on the pill young. Because when women were first put on the pill, like first taking the pill 50 or 60 years ago, they were starting it later in their 20s, maybe after they'd already had a kid or something. You know, it was mm-hmm. a very different situation than starting it at 13. And so these women who've been in the last decade or two starting it at 13 or 14, potentially not reaching peak bone density, we're not going to know about that for another 20 or 30 years, right? Until they kind of grow up and get into their postmenopause years. And this is all, I mean, it's an experiment. We don't have that long-term data from pill users. And the, what we do have, this lack of, you know, failure to reach peak bone density is concerning. Yeah, for sure. Sh- yeah, <laughs> for sure. For sure. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And as you're, as you're talking... I was just thinking of a couple of different things and I went yeah. through my, my personal training certification and, and was in fitness and all of that. And it's just, it's kind of crazy to me thinking about, um, I think it's like your sports training, um, you were talking about yeah. doing that and how yeah. not once, I mean, there was a small section on overeating or under eating yeah. and how that could potentially be an issue, but there was not one no. mention of how to work with women specifically. and so. Yeah, no, it's because, well, because it's because we treat the male body as the default standard normal body. And we have this weird idea that anything, you know, women are basically the same, we think, which is wrong. And that, you know, whatever differences really is only have to do with making a baby. But, you know, it's not, not taking into consideration that for the normal human, which I would argue a woman is, for a normal human, our physiology is quite different in the two phases of the menstrual cycle. And we can harness that, right? Like we can work with that. And the other thing in sports medicine, it's becoming more and more clear, is the way the pill or hormonal birth control, hormonal birth control impairs muscle gain and muscle mass. So and potentially impairs performance. One of our little lectures here, when this lectures um, just a few weeks ago, we had a number of... Um, personal trainers and actually a couple of scientists in the audience, you know, um, sports nutrition scientists, but 
just agreeing that um, as soon as you hear that information, that take in that knowledge that those drugs, contraceptive drugs, impair sports performance, it's a deal breaker for most women. They're like, I, you know, especially for women who are trying to, you know, perform and have a certain level of output to discover that this drug has been holding you back is, yeah, for these, you know, it's just, they, they come off it straight away because they want to harness the benefits of their own estradiol, their own estrogen, for example, and get the muscle gain that estrogen gives. Well, and it's just cool to look at it from a perspective of like working with your body. Yeah. And that's just, yeah, to be seeing to- seeing female hormones as an asset rather than a liability, which I think is a common. You know, I'm so hormonal. You know, I'm so I this know. and this. You know, it's I know. we we put so much um, negativity towards that side of us when it is it is our superpower. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Can so I just have so many questions. Like, yeah. How okay? So what does a, in terms of like symptoms, um, that maybe there's an underlying, I don't know if we've touched on this, but if in terms of like an irregular period or maybe a painful period, cause I've known yeah. we talk, I know you talk a little bit about like what a normal healthy period should look like. Um, yeah. can we talk about that yeah, a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So, okay, let's be, yeah, let's talk through. So as we said, in terms of the timing of the cycle, the most important thing is that ovulation is happening. And really that creates a time parameter. So for ovulation to be happening in a timely manner, that would result in a cycle that is anywhere between sort of 21 days, up to 35 days, up to potentially 45 days for a young woman in her teens or early 20s. From day, counting from day one of the cycle to day one of the cycle. So kind of roughly, you know, 21 to 45 days, let's say for a young woman, is normal. And that's, it suggests that ovulation is probably occurring, although it's still worth confirming with temperatures that it is occurring. And then the next thing is, shouldn't be too heavy. So shouldn't be losing more than about 80 milliliters, which is just a few tablespoons of menstrual fluid throughout all the days of the period. You can measure that with a cup or... In my book, I provide some ways to estimate with tampons, just get a rough idea of how much fluid, uh, how much blood you're losing. And then the next expectation is, I would say the expectation is no pain. Hmm. No pain. I am hearing pain is common, so we tend to think it's normal, but here's the way I see it. You know, I, I find that period, normal, like standard period pain is actually pretty easy to treat and eliminate. With a couple simple treatments, I can say what they are. I don't have to be coy about that. You know, um, dairy-free diet, zinc, these are probably the big ones I would recommend. Many women will find that eliminates period pain. There can be some other diet tweaks to do, changes, avoiding vegetable oil, you know, obviously avoiding junk food. And then my view is if that doesn't work, if that's not enough, then there's that's a sign that something else is going on, something... Mm-hmm more serious, which could include the inflammatory disease, endometriosis, which is no picnic. Let's say that like it's, 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 it's a pretty serious condition and it deserves, it's not just bad periods, right? Like endometriosis is an inflammatory disease. It needs to be considered, thought about, look at treatment, you know, discuss different treatments as a combination of um, natural or 
conventional treatments for endometriosis. One is endometriosis affects one in 10 women. It's pretty common. And it typically takes, wait for it, 10 years to get a diagnosis because women are just told, because we have this idea that period, it's normal for periods to be painful. Doctors are just like, well, you know, it probably just you have to put up with it or, you know, try this painkiller or, you know, whatever it is. And meanwhile, some women are in, with the condition are in agony and it, yeah, it takes a long time to digest. So there's a lot of um, activism, kind of awareness building about endometriosis to lots of things. I mean, to make doctors more aware, to potentially come up with a non-invasive diagnostic technique, like a blood test or a saliva test, which would be great, so that you can then just know that's what you're dealing with and take steps to deal with the condition and not just put up with it. So, and not just use the pill for it, because this thing, I mean, the pill... Okay, so the pill, I mean, because it shuts down the menstrual cycle, it can mask a lot of symptoms and it can sometimes reduce endometriosis pain, but it's by no means a cure or a guarantee. Like some women get worse on the pill with endometriosis. It's definitely not a, yeah, it's not a cure. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, because I'm, I'm just curious about the endometriosis yeah. part. I feel like that has been something I've been thinking because my periods for years have been excruciating to the point okay. where like I would stay home okay. from work, you know, um, and deal with it at home. Yep. And even taking pain medication or something, there would still be an underlying level of pain. Um, and I, you know, asked like, how do I find out if I have this? I know. Um, it was, you know, this invasive surgery. And so it was like, okay, yeah. well, what do I do? You know? Um, I know. And I've been hearing a lot of my women friends have been coming forward and saying, I think like we, I bonded with a few because we've talked yeah. about our pain, you know? Yeah. And I, the IUD was something that was suggested to me, but then getting into the weeds, but the way things are working down there, it would have to be someone very specialized would have to put it in. And I just didn't yeah. feel like I had a lot of knowledge around okay. that. So yeah, let's just talk about that for a minute. Cause yours is, is a common story. So it's yeah. by no means an unusual situation. Yeah. Um, a lot of women out there wondering, you know, is my pain severe enough? Have I crossed over the line to endometriosis? I would say, yeah, my test is with, with kind of what you call in, in quotation marks, you know, normal period pain. Cause I would say period pain is never normal, but let's say the more standard kind of normal one. Yeah, you should be able to take a painkiller, mostly, you know, pretty much deals with it, be able to still go to work. You know, it's not, maybe you don't love it, but it's really not a big deal. That would be kind of the category of normal pain. As soon as it's interfering with work or school, as soon as it's the kind of pain where a painkiller doesn't really relieve it or even touch it in some cases, then that's increasing the likelihood that it's endometriosis. It could be other things too. There's another condition called adenomyosis, which generally would affect older women, but can also happen to young women, kind of similar to endometriosis. But then with my patients, if they're in that situation, so first I'll say, okay, let's try these basic things that work for normal period pain. Give that three months. If that doesn't work, we're going to essentially treat it as if it's endometriosis. That's my strategy. So then I implement some of the endometriosis uh, treatments that I discuss in my book, which... Um, involve, I mean, it's a little bit more, I can't just give a little check, checklist here, but I'd say, for example, there's a nutritional supplement called N-acetylcysteine, which is, does seem to be very helpful in combination with 
kind of more serious diet changes, um, diet changes that can help with a inflammatory, potentially immune disease that endometriosis is. Plus selenium, you know, sorry, I kind of, it's, it's, it's a stronger approach. For sure. And then, you know, put that in place. Also considering whether a visit to a specialist or a gynecologist is, well, I think it is always worth doing because at this stage, as you say, at this stage, the only gold standard way to diagnose is surgery, but a good gynecologist can also go by symptoms. They palpate, they can do a specialized kind of ultrasound where they may or may not see something. You know, they can, they've seen endometriosis so many hundreds of times, you know, that they can make a more educated opinion as to what that is. So I would, yeah, I would usually with my patients recommend they see a a, um, a gynecologist who's a specialist in endometriosis and at least ask the questions. Can and you all see of it? Us, sorry, yeah. can you see it in an ultrasound? Sometimes. Okay. Yes, but not always. And it okay. sort of depends. They need to do kind of a more specialized type of ultrasound. I'm gotcha. not sure the details. And they, even then, if they don't see it, it's not guaranteed that it's not there. But if they, they might see it. Okay. Um, so it's certainly worth having a, being assessed by someone who really knows what they're doing. That's, I think that's, that's what, yeah, definitely. And then all of us are hoping that the non-invasive test is coming. I really don't think it can be much longer. I mean, there's a couple under development right now where they're looking at biomarkers of the disease to be able to pick those up in, I think one of them is a saliva test and one of them is a blood test that's under investigation. And it, that'll be a game changer. Like as soon as we yeah. have that, then it would be so good just to get that information. There's still a the possibility then that surgery is part of the treatment, which mm-hmm. is daunting, I know, for women. But I will say from my perspective, surgery is sometimes worth doing. Yeah. Especially if it's done properly, what's called excision surgery. It can be a cure in not every case, but it can be, you know, in about 50% of cases when done properly. So I think, yeah, it's, it's certainly my experience. Some, some patients have really had relief from that in combination with the natural treatment. Because endometriosis, just for people who don't know what that is, that's when the uterine wall or the lining grows outside. Is that, or how does that that's work? When there, there are bits of tissue that look like uterine lining growing throughout different places in the pelvis. Usually in the pelvis, it can actually be anywhere in the body, but typically growing yeah, throughout the pelvis. It could be on the bowel, you know, on the side of the wall, on the outside of the uterus, on the ovaries. Yeah, that a whole idea that it came out of, it was sort of a retrograde flow through the tubes. I don't know that that's entirely accepted now. We don't really know how those lesions got there. But at the end of the day, I think um, it's pretty clear from the current research that it's an inflammatory immune process, kind of immune dysfunction that's driving it, inflaming those lesions. Okay. So it's not actually, endometriosis in my thinking is not a hormonal condition. It's affected by hormones, but it's actually an inflammatory disease. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I interrupted you to go on a tangent yeah. of endometriosis, um, but no, 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 that was a good, I think that was a good, well, one in 10 of your listeners are going to, that's relevant to them or it's to someone they know. So even if you don't think of endometriosis yourself, listeners, you know, someone, a friend or almost certainly is wondering about that. So you yes. can direct them to this podcast or, you know, help them out. Yeah. So we were talking about pain yeah. What, it, what a healthy period looks like. Yeah. So 21 to 45 days, you know, not, no more than 80 mils blood loss, no pain and no PMS, I would mm-hmm. say. I mean, there can be subtle differences in how you feel, but 
Yeah, it should be, it should not be any strong PMS symptoms. And if there are, then there are things you can do about it. Actually, PMS is one of my favorite things to treat. So I find it responds incredibly well. And that's just what is PMS? Like, I think we all just know PMS and we have an understanding of the mood switches, but what does that look like? And I know we're running short on time, but yeah, Yeah, we'll have to finish soon. (laughs) I've got my Spanish lesson I actually have to go to here. So, um, (laughs) um, yeah, so premenstrual symptoms, I'm thinking mainly of mood, I guess, you know, headaches, irritability, sometimes quite strong mood, like up to the level of, you know, depression, anxiety, quite intense. That can certainly happen. Yeah. You know, sometimes when we get joint pain, uh, breast swelling, painful breasts, things like that. Good. And I know in your book, you talk about those things, right. And then how to yeah. what you can do naturally to help with those. So yeah. I can definitely point people that way. Yeah. Uh, they want to look at the, the treatments, yeah. the natural ways to treat those things. Um, I feel like this time didn't even happen. But I feel like we touched on so many things that I just yeah. think we need to be talking about more. And I so appreciate everything you're doing. And yeah. if, is there anything else that you wanted to close with or kind of sign off on before we end our time? Yeah, one of my closing messages is always that a healthy, normal period is almost always possible for all of you listeners, even the people who think, oh, no, you know, not me, I can't ovulate or I'm broken or I, you know, that's my experience over 20 years with thousands of patients and now thousands of readers is that most people can get there. You know, there's always exceptions, I guess, but I just want to invite women to think, yes, this is possible for you. It might sound like, you know, fantasy world that you could have this regular painless period, but it is possible. And there's um, alternatives that you can have or use instead of being on the pill. There's different ways if you want to manage birth control. Than for, avoiding, for avoiding pregnancy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's in my book. I also have a blog post called The Five Best Types of Natural Birth Control. I'll link that too. Perfect. Because I don't want people to think, you know, well, I need to, I want to manage my birth control in terms of not having a baby, but yeah, there's other ways. Of course. Well, there's there's lots of ways to, well, at the moment there are a few other ways to avoid pregnancy. And I am very confident, hopeful that scientists will come up with some even better ways because seriously, why should we have to shut down a woman's entire hormonal system? No. Just to avoid pregnancy. I mean, it's 2018. Come on, people. Yeah. In terms of technology, like I think we could come up with something better. Totally. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Yeah. Um, thank you so, so, so yeah. much for taking the time out of your day to speak yeah. with us. And yeah. um, I, I, again, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your work. And right. All right. Just thank you so thank, much. Thank you so much, Stephanie. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you at all resonated with today's message, please give it a share either with a friend or a family member or on Instagram. You can tag me at Stephanie Dankelson. The best way to get this podcast growing and to share this message with the world is through word of mouth. Thank you to those of you who have already shared this podcast. It means so much to me. I appreciate all of you and we will see you all soon.